Welcome to the Grounds for Investing podcast, where each episode we explore the business of investing with purpose so that hopefully you can make a difference for the investments you make. I'm your host, Ray, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Lucy. Lucy, how are you? I am very good, Ray. Super excited for our very first interview today. We talk about using this podcast as an opportunity to connect with some of the leaders in the impact investing space here in Australia, and we've definitely got one of the best today. In this interview, we had the privilege of speaking with Hannah Abelin. Hannah is the CEO of Social Enterprise Finance Australia, CIFA, one of Australia's leading impact fund managers. Hannah also has experience working across private banking, the not-for-profit sector, and the United Nations. We asked Hannah what brought her to the impact investing space, the challenges she faced, and some interesting experiences along the way. We explore the concept of impact investing and how the industry has evolved in Australia. Hannah shared with us why access to education is really important and some practical advice about how young millennials can get started with impact investing. Yeah, it can be difficult to wrap your head around what exactly impact investing is all about. And so both of us really found it fascinating to hear about it from the perspective of someone directly involved. Hopefully you find the interview as helpful as we did and let's get right into it. Awesome. So, hey guys. So today, guest interview is none other than Hannah Ebling. She's the CEO of SEPA and we're really grateful to have her here with us today. So Hannah, thanks for joining us. I guess we, we like to start the, the episodes usually just by asking us to tell us a little bit about yourself your journey to to getting to where you are today and I guess any interesting experiences you've you've had along the way we'd love to hear about it yeah yeah sure no thank you so much um Ray and Lucy for you know having me here today very happy to share my story because you know at some point when I try to get into impact investing I probably would have really benefited benefited from hearing from about somebody else's story so more than happy to share so as you might have already guessed, I'm not originally from Australia. I'm actually German. So, but nevertheless, I sort of ventured out very early on already when I was 16, went to England, school exchange, and afterwards studied abroad and sort of tried to sort of decide what I really wanted to do with myself. So I think when I did economics at university, I was always having the idea of helping other people, you know, potentially going into international development, maybe working for the IMF or World Bank making the world a better place. So actually already having that internal drive. But I somehow felt it came across as daunting, especially these multilateral organizations, mm-hmm. especially as a graduate. It sounded like you needed to have like three PhDs and five or 10 years yeah. of work <laughs> for an internship. So I actually decided to go to HSBC instead. Within their private banking division, I did a graduate scheme for two and a half years. And actually had you know the privilege of going to different locations, including Miami and Sydney as well. So I already knew then. But I think after a couple of years when I worked in the head office with a chief investment officer, sort of I it really just came across that report from JP Morgan and emerging impact investing and emerging impact uh, asset class, sorry. And all of a sudden I was like, this is it. This is sort of my financial economics brain, but still that you know, deeply ingrained value around wanting to do good. Mm. And so I was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is, you know, almost like finding my my calling. So I initially started 
to try and convince people inside the private bank and within HSBC to do something in the space. So obviously that's sometimes what people do. We call them entrepreneurs, right? (laughs) From within. So I did actually put in a lot of extra time to put together paper and, you know, bringing other people already doing it into the bank. But I think after 12 months, and that was probably just also around the time when the GFC had really hit, I sort of discovered that there wasn't really a lot of appetite to do that. Mm. And I think that when it came to this point in my life where I had to make a decision, right? Do you want to continue getting like a good paycheck every month, you know, and sort of just comfortably sit there in London or sort of do I want to follow my heart and take a little bit of a risk? Mm. And at some point I decided over Christmas and I had just found this fellowship opportunity with LGT Venture Philanthropy. Uh-huh. So it's the Liechtenstein Global Trust. It's the princely family of Liechtenstein. They're doing big wealth and fund management activities in Europe yeah. and they basically do a lot of philanthropy and impact investing on the side. And so they were looking for young professionals to sort of place um, with some portfolio companies that they had provided an impact investment to or even help on the investment side. So I was sort of sitting there, I remember over Christmas, I had gotten, you know, the, the offer to do a fellowship with them for a year in, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, do I just forget about my bonus with HSBC? Or, you know, is it all a little bit like too much? Like people were calling me crazy. I remember my boss in London, my direct boss, crazy, you're resigning. This is not a good idea. But I did it. Uh In fact, if you have the support, a funny story from the chief investment officer, I was already in Manila when I handed in my resignation. So he was actually supportive. I kept my bonus, which was good because (laughs) I wasn't making any money. But really that year of like, you know, you know, having that experience on the ground in the Philippines. And actually, I forgot to add that after my journey or like, sorry, my work and efforts with HSBC were unsuccessful, I did try and apply in London to a couple of positions with some, you know, impact investment firms. But I felt I didn't really have that direct transaction experience, nor the on the grass sort of not-for-profit expertise sort of. I was falling through the grid almost. So at that point, you see that there was a lot of people from like ex-private equity, ex-M&A, who all of a sudden had found the goodness of their heart and said, like, no, 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 we want people, you know, hire us and impact investing. So actually, I made this decision to go to the Philippines to effectively say, well, I've got, you know, maybe sort of some financy experience and I'm a financial analyst. So I know how to work with numbers, but I didn't have that direct transaction experience. But by going to the Philippines, I was able to get that hands-on, sort of getting my hands dirty, mm. sort of tick on my resume, I guess. And so I was working there with early stage social enterprises, you know, across a range of activities, like going into slums, mm. working, you know, with subsistence farmers, doing due diligence on the back of the motorbike, riding through <laughs> the, you know, Filipino rice fields. So something actually really adventurous and I really enjoyed, sort of really feeling that you're helping people with like the basic needs like food, water, livelihood, education, healthcare. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I decided to stay there um, a little bit longer. I actually met an Australian guy there. Oh. You know, funny enough, you know, life takes its turns. So I worked there later on on basically the social enterprise side with an organization that wanted to do affordable bamboo housing mm-hmm. with the United 
So Hilti Foundations was doing like an action research project there. So it was interesting first to be on the investment side of impact investing and then switching to more of the sort of social enterprise side. And then after two years, basically, I got the opportunity to, you know, return to Sydney in Australia. And um, I got introduced to CIFA through some connections to how it always is. It's a small world and impact here in Australia. And I did actually start as an intern, mm-hmm. like volunteer, because initially I didn't have the right to work here in Australia, so I had to wait for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of weeks after I started, they had a position open. Mm-hmm. I started, uh, you know, social finance relationship manager. And six years later, funny how, yeah, sort of the the you know, life just takes its turns. So I'd say overall, it's still my dream job. No day is the same. Mm. But the impact investing market in Australia is obviously very different to the Philippines. So, right. you know, some I feel like, oh, do I feel that I would have more impact in the Philippines because with every dollar you can achieve more there? Mm. I think it's not the right approach, you know. The work that I'm doing here in Australia is also really valuable mm. and rewarding, right? Talking to the clients that we are supporting and their ultimate beneficiaries and the social outcomes they achieve is just, you know, I'm basically happy when I go home, when I close my laptop and I look on a Sunday night, I look forward to Monday mm. going to work. I've never had that feeling with HSBC. So. <laughs> well, that's, that's the most important thing, right? Not to the same extent. I still enjoy, you know, working with a team, you know, high-performing team and sort of, you know, intellectually stimulating, but that's sort of the... If you're personally satisfied, it's just like impact investing. That's just my thing. So, mm. so that was the big intro, probably a little bit more than you had hoped for or asked for. But that's basically Hannah's story in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah, wow. I think it sounds like you've had, I guess, a, a very wide range of experiences mm. and a lot of scene changes along the way. Yeah, different um, countries. <laughs> different countries, different, different yeah. experiences. I've lived in nine countries. Wow. Wow. Do you, out of curiosity, do you, do you have a favorite? Uh, I have to say when I was like, what, 23, living a year in Barcelona was good. That was a little bit of a party year. <laughs> probably not healthy. But I have to say overall, and that's probably also why I'm now, you know, sort of still got stuck in Australia, is besides work and good friends and stuff, I just like the lifestyle here, right? Mm. So it's a fantastic country to, to base yourself in, although obviously it's far away which maybe now in the times of corona was actually a good thing, right? You never know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, I, I guess seeing as sort of you've made that transition from private to, to um, you know, social enterprise and impact investing, how have you, I'm curious, I guess we're curious, how, how did you find that transition? Was it, was it difficult? And was it, I guess, was it a difficult decision to make? To, to make that decision to, to go from HSBC to working in, in the Philippines and then becoming more involved in the, um, the social impact space? Well, you know, I mean, and maybe coming back to that decision, I mean, of course, like I was very fortunate to make, and probably still even, especially as a female, I was probably still underpaid, right, compared to other, com- compared, compared to other people in London, but I, I thought I was very well paid. And just knowing that I would cut my salary by 70 or 80% going to the Philippines on this sort of fellowship stipend, of course, you're thinking like, well, you know, sort of supposedly now I'm on the upswing of my career with HSBC. I was, you know, part of a leadership program where actually we did work with social enterprises. So I was like, oh, this is actually so much more fun than my normal banking job. So 
sort of funny, you know, how HR sends you into these like leadership courses and that makes you actually almost want to leave the company because, you know, you you fall in love with the, with the work that you're doing whilst being on the course. But I think in the end, I've never been a person who's been really financially motivated, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yes, there have been moments that I'm like, you know, not so much around, well, re- complete regret that I'm just thinking, well, all the work that I'm doing, I just sometimes know that I could make potentially even double the amount even that I'm making now in the in the private financial sector, right? Mm-hmm. But then even now I'm very happy and, you know, feel like financially looking after myself that I'm like, well, that wouldn't really add that happiness to my life, whereas like the work that I'm doing does, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, for me, it was really like a little bit of a revelation that the combination and doing the work of impact investing, I feel like I did have to learn everything a little bit from scratch. Mm-hmm. So while people came with, you know, pre-formed view of how to do credits or equity investments, everything I know about doing transaction within a social finance context is because I've learned it, like learned the ropes right from the start, both in the Philippines and here. For example, in the Philippines, all of our investments they were primarily convertible notes mm-hmm. and so well that's basically convertible debt mm-hmm. and so you know we didn't take security like there was no mortgage or anything so when I came to Australia like all these things about like the legal stuff and no you have to register that there mm-hmm. and then so you can enforce security there so oh this is all new but it, you know everything I had to sort of learn as I was doing it and I think I always just asked the question why mm-hmm. and why not like in a different way and I think that's sometimes what actually was quite helpful when it came to impact investing because a lot of times people say like well this is how it should work because that's how we normally do loans right you just add the social bit on top but I think it's a lot more than that the way we are structuring loans at CIFA I think is very different to a bank we don't want to be a bank you know if people are ready for a bank and they want to go to the bank there's many banks on the high street and you know in other areas and I think that can actually be sometimes an, be an advantage that I didn't have that preconceived culture or mindset in terms of how transactions are being done. But it was a very steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. And also, I think as part of impact investing, you're a little bit of a generalist, you know, sort of jack of all trades. You tend to work in a small company. So there's no IT department, there's no HR department. You literally have to do everything from A to Z. So even now, sometimes as a CEO, I have to do that many stuff. There's not like, you know, like an army of supporting soldiers around you. And I think that's, that's definitely another challenge going into social finance, that everything is smaller, under-resourced, and, you know, not necessarily sort of a very profitable business model to operate in. And you really have to be a generalist to be across, you know, all potential transactions. But, for example, I've worked in a, on an affordable funeral home. Like, that's appropriate. So I had to find out, like, how much does it cost to buy body fridges? Oh, I had a technology called aquamation, which is like cremation, but with liquid. So apparently it's CO2 yeah. neutral. Who would have known? I'm pretty yeah. sure. Oh, it's crazy things you come across like I looked into seagrass friendly mooring systems like I tell you there's never a dull day at CIFA never (laughs) (laughs) yeah that sounds so interesting I'd love to just step back a little bit there can you tell us and our listeners who may not be very familiar with CIFA what do you guys do in the impact investing space and 
want to maybe achieve? Yeah, sure. So we were sort of founded by a group of entrepreneuring gentlemen about 10 years ago. So there was actually a grant opportunity from the Commonwealth out of the employment budget. Believe it or not, they had $20 million left over. I don't know how they did it, but that year they had. And so they said, we want to invest these $20 million into basically an initiative that creates alternative funding mechanisms for social enterprises. So back then the idea, and still today, is that a lot of social enterprises will employ and train disadvantaged cohorts of you know, of, of um, citizens. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that basically the employment budget could be sort of used as a leverage tool by forming like individual sort of investment vehicles. And CIFA was the only startup back then who was successful. And we were actually quite successful because we got 10 million out of the 20 million awarded. That was sort of our starting seed capital Mm-hmm. in form of like a first loss piece and also to fund startup costs. And we had to match those $10 million with um, $10 million of private capital. So we've got about just over $2.2 million in equity. So we actually profit for purpose in, in social business. And our largest shareholder is New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council mm-hmm. and a couple of other sort of individuals and foundations. And then the rest is debt, which we can only take on money from so-called wholesale or sophisticated investors, so not like retail investors like you you and I. Mm. And so, again, trying to tap into high net worth sort of foundation money. So at the moment we are, you know, operating like a $20 million sort of social debt fund, although we are potentially thinking about also broadening our mandate now more towards potentially maybe investing into real assets and maybe into equity as well. And then the second pillar, apart from this, so the first pillar that I just described is effectively sort of on balance sheet sort of investing. Mm -hmm. And then the second pillar is really around creating direct co-investment opportunities. So doing larger loans in the form of syndicates, Mm -hmm. where still sort of participating and managing the entire transaction, but we are able to invite other impact investors to sit alongside us on the same terms. And then the third pillar that has really sort of grown over the last one to two years is what we call sort of fee-for-service, which is very broad and it basically means anything sort of but directly capital. So we can offer investment readiness services, working with organisations around capital structures, capital raising support. Mm -hmm. You know, we can assist them with capability building when it comes to governance or potentially their business model, give them feedback around that. And then on the other side, we're also working with social investors around providing due diligence services, maybe portfolio management, potentially actually also acting as trustee and investment manager for, you know, sort of standalone impact funds. Mm -hmm. So that sort of is an important now third pillar of our sort of revenue slash business plan. And so ultimately in the end, we want to, you know, unlock social impact through finance Mm. through finance and more so we see building capacity in the purpose sector Mm. as two things one capital yes but second also capability Mm. so without capability you can't use the capital Mm. and if you've got capital but no access to capital you're also really have to go hand in hand Hannah, can you then maybe give us an example of a project that you guys worked on 
that was focusing on helping the organization with capacity building in particular? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think the best example for that is probably really what we call our blended transactions. So blended transactions are when we are putting in an repayable form of finance, for example, a loan, but combine it with other sources of funding. So that could be a government grant, a philanthropic grant, potentially crowdfunding. So a lot of times, you know, when clients come to us and let's say they need $100 for a project, after conducting our due diligence, we actually assess they can only take on a loan of $50 because that's, you know, the maximum affordability or sort of debt serviceability. And then we have to do a lot of running around finding the gap, the remaining $50. So I think a good example is actually Shopfront. It's a, it's a theatre for young people, young people, you know, who've become disengaged let's say with school or some even also young people who've got disabilities so through the ads they're you know working on their self-esteem their self-expression so Shopfront is a very much community and youth-led um, organization and they have been around for I think now coming up to 40 years and they wanted to actually expand their premises in Carlton here near near Sydney to include more performance spaces studios but also office space so we've actually worked with them for four and a half years in total. It took us four and a half years to build the deal together. So ask that normal banker, would you work on a deal for four and a half years? <laughs> <laughs> uh, of like, you know, not like more, you know, just slightly over 500,000. So probably uh, the answer would be no. So that's when social finance come in. We've got a lot of passion and patience, yeah. a lot of patience. So we've worked with them to really look at the most suitable loan structure. So there was like a construction loan, but then also sort of a contingency loan for them to, you know, bridge some um, additional fundraising that they wanted to do later as part of sort of the expansion work. We introduced them to foundations. So the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation contributed a loan into that blended structure, but they were also able to secure funding from government and in terms of different infrastructure programs and other club grants. So actually the capacity building is yes we are giving a loan but we are also giving them feedback around like what is a suitable loan structure to really sort of be best suited to the cash flow that the, you know that they have coming in and and I think basically with us working alongside them through the different stages of the process they probably would have maybe sometimes felt a little bit overwhelmed when it came sort of to that whole financing component yeah <laughs> I imagine and, and do you guys typically, so I guess, continue to support a lot of these projects once the funding's been secured, so helping them um, continue to grow their capacity or, I guess, continue to support them as they as they uh, go along after, the I guess, the deals initially? Yeah, I mean, we are lender, right? We want our money back. We're not going <laughs> to before we don't have our money back. So obviously for the, I guess, like low-touch clients sometimes, you know, we only speak to them once a year as part of the formal credit review. Mm-hmm. Some certain loans that we consider to be higher risk. We, you know, we're just talking to clients more frequently. And you can imagine, especially now in times of COVID, mm-hmm. there's a couple of troubled, you know, TLC troubled, um, troubled lending clients that need a little bit more oversight and handholding. But I think overall we've got with, you know, the vast majority of our clients, very, very strong relationships. You know, we've got a much more personal approach and sometimes we connect them and maybe generate additional business or input into their business model. Mm-hmm. Some clients obviously 
fairly happy sort of just to get on with their things and they're just like yeah you know the loan is just sort of a part of our funding mechanism and they are sort of actually prefer to be left to their own you know to their own devices really but yes with a lot of clients also sometimes we've had follow-on business so a good example is a new innovative more affordable housing model called Nightingale out of Melbourne so it's really focused on doing green buildings that are sustainable and giving the power back to people in terms of what are the dwellings that they want to live in mm-hmm. so it's really sort of more uh, creating more urban communities that are inclusive mm. and so nobody wanted to lend to them because they you know didn't have a big balance sheet of a developer their model wasn't proven so i think they had gone to 34 different lenders and everybody said no and then they came to cfa and we were able to pull together a six and a half million dollar senior debt syndicate to to help with the construction of those 20 units and some office space and then you know quickly later i'm now working already on the third nightingale project with with the with the team and so you know we are also sometimes trying to accompany clients through the journey so for the second nightingale project we were already able to introduce them to nab as the senior funder at that point cfa actually took the role of mezzanine finance provider so subordinated debt which you know was really important for us to fill that gap to then you know enable them to access cheaper debt capital from NAB. so i'd say it also shows that we've got certain obviously key accounts and recurring relationships that we nurture yep. and that we want to on and i think in the end people hopefully would like to return to cfa because you know yep. we've we've you know, they, we've got a personal approach. They know the person, you know, it's not a faceless bank where you just plug in numbers and spreadsheets and it spits out yes or no for a loan. We actually work with you. You know, we listen to you. We might ask you a lot of hard questions, but we are also there sort of really as a true partner, mm. I'd say. Mm. Yeah, it sounds really um, impressive what you guys do at CIFR and, and the way that I guess you're helping some of you know, some of the, the growing uh, companies around Australia really help help them make a difference as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In doing so, making a difference uh, yourself. So I think that that sounds really, that sounds really awesome. Mm. So I guess I wanted to take a step back. And so I guess a term that we've sort of mentioned quite a lot so far is the whole term of impact investing itself. I think we would love to hear, how would you define you know the concept of impact investing to say to say a young millennial or or someone out there who's curious to to learn more about it and perhaps doesn't really come from say a finance background or doesn't really have the um, the background knowledge i think you know obviously it's a tough question because obviously there's a lot of different definitions mm. and i feel like it's a bit of the new exciting kid on the blog and everybody talks about it mm. and i think sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect between like talking about it you know the theory mm. which couldn't look very very shiny so yeah. so basically you know i think from a theoretical perspective it's basically trying to combine the value of purpose mm. so social outcomes doing good in the world mm. with a financial return mm. and basically a financial return that's adjusted for the risk of that particular project or you know or initiative and finding the balance i think obviously that's that's then the interesting practical part so a lot of times when people talk about impact investing i think they have got this idea that you can get market-based returns so a lot of people always say like on market 
adjusted or market equivalent returns, right? Which is sort of sounds like the best of both worlds. Like you can get, you know, basically the whole like cake and icing carry on the top, especially impact. And and so I think a lot of times, and, and there might be some transactions where that's possible. I mean, especially in emerging markets, you've got big populations. So even if you make really small margins, just the volume of products and services you can sell potentially really make a business model stack up. Mm. But here in Australia, it's sometimes a lot more challenging to sort of basically find the balance between the two. And sometimes if you really want to achieve the social outcomes, and I think that's how impact investing is different from, let's say, socially responsible investing or, you know, ethical investing, where you do sort of a lot of times negative screening or positive screening, Mm -hmm. but with a sort of, you know, financial first sort of approach. Whereas I think for impact investing, it's really the intent. The primary intent is to potentially, you know, definitely achieve outcomes, but ideally also longer term impact and most importantly, system change. So that's at least sort of my personal definition. And I think sometimes in order to achieve that, sometimes that is like a opportunity cost Mm -hmm. or like the social outcome sort of additional cost layer. So a good example is like is you know the like a lot of people talk about social enterprise cafes all the time, where they're training and employing you know um, disadvantaged young people, mm. but a lot of them, for example, have got mental health issues and um, you know or may- maybe other physical issues. So that means that it might take longer for them to learn. They can't maybe work for that so many hours. Their sons might not show up for work. So this whole and that the labor cost of that social enterprise is going to be the same as a normal cafe is probably not very realistic. Mm. But it also means that the social outcomes that you're generating, you know, they are valuable. problem that impact investing has that a lot of these social outcomes are important to investors, but in terms of really measuring them, it is challenging. In the end, a lot of those social outcomes are effectively public good. They're saving tax dollars. But then, you know, it's not really recorded from an accounting perspective and nobody really pays you for that. I mean, there's, you know, now some initiatives from government around doing payment by outcomes contracts. So government basically, you know, procuring services from, let's say, a not-for-profit to do something around homelessness. And if they achieve certain outcomes, the, the government will make a successful payment. So there it's really focused on sort of cost saving to government. But a lot of times when it comes to social enterprises, I'd say the the good things that are done, they are sort of just there. There's no real monetary value attributed to that. So when you then just look at the pure financial return by, the, let's say, just selling coffees, it might just not be that attractive. And I think a lot of times here in Australia, people have that expectations that you can get both. Yeah. And so... But not a lot of transactions at least come across our desk where it's sort of apparent that you can get really good high financial returns and the social outcomes on top. Mm-hmm. And that's why I might have heard it. A lot of talk, people talk about there's not enough pipeline. Mm-hmm. There's like not enough deals. There's nothing to invest or deals that don't meet our expectations. Mm-hmm. So I think it always depends on the approach and sort of the investor lens, I think, that you are having and something that I guess we're both really curious about is how do you guys usually measure the social impact? I mean, I think that's another sort of big discussion arena for the entire impact investing space. So, 
there's not really like a you know, sort of agreed accounting standard in terms of that social impact measurement. I mean, there are some organizations like IRIS and where I'm trying impact report international reporting impact standards on from the GIN, the global impact and impact network. Yep. There's a couple of organizations who are trying to standardize it to make it more comparable. Mm. But a lot of t- also comes down to the fact that a lot of purpose-driven organizations just don't have the resources to do a lot of the reporting. It's very costly. Yeah. So we at CIFA, we take quite a flexible approach. Yes, it would be great to have some actual outcomes measured, ideally outcomes measured by the organization that they already basically collect and report as part of their normal sort of, you know, commercial ongoing operations. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to be a burden, you know, we don't want to be a burden on these organizations. And, and then the other idea that we normally really like is to tell stories, to yeah. actually give examples people directly benefiting from it. So I remember at LGT when I worked there, they had this idea of magnitude or scale of impact, which was more quantitative. Mm-hmm. So just growing or let's say how many school kids, you know, you are helping. And then the other axis was the depth of the impact, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more qualitative. So a lot of times they try to express it as, you know, relative. How much better is your health? And so the depth of the impact, the qualitative sort of the delta, like the change or the sort of what the change that the intervention or prevention has on a person's life. Mm. And that's sort of a little bit more yeah, qualitative, although sometimes you can express it in percentages, for example. Mm. But that's sort of quite important to complement it with both, mm. you know, the quality the quantitative. But overall, I think at the moment, I feel like the sustainable development goals, there are 17 of them, yeah. mm. and they're quite illustrative. They are styles. They've got colors. They've got simple, like, headlines. Yeah. It's very tangible. And mm. because they're international, global, a lot of the institutional investors, for example, the super funds in Australia, they find that's kind of quite a straightforward network. Mm. So I think sort of a concept that a lot of people are starting to sort of apply. Mm. And I actually quite like that idea, although obviously some of the sustainable development goals are sort of very basic needs mm. and they might not be that applicable to the Australian context. But, mm. yeah, but still worthwhile looking into for sure. I'm pretty sure you could, you know, have another entire interview series <laughs> on that. Out of curiosity, Hannah, from the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, is there any that you found yourself particularly connect to? I think overall it's really access to education, right? I mean, in the end, education, like everything that I was doing now, whether it's education that's theoretical or practical education, Mm. it sort of just gives you, it opens up the world to you and it allows you to make your own decisions and it allows you to basically be you know, sort of boss of your own sort of destiny. Mm-hmm. So I think that when it comes especially down to the, you know, context in the Philippines or even here, right, giving everybody a chance to educate themselves and make their own choices, yep. I think that's really important. And, for example, I have been not um, until recently, for several years, I was a volunteer mentor with an organization called We Do. Mm-hmm. It's a certified space out of Bangkok, and they are really trying to support emerging female leaders across Asia. Mm. primarily through undergraduate, but sometimes already in high school and then also post-grad, but really trying to, you know, get girls even from really rural villages, Bangladesh, Nepal, you know, access to really good education and become leaders within their community. Mm. And so 
some of the young, I've mentored two young women and they were just absolutely, you know, amazing, like so driven, so compassionate, so humble and so smart, right? And so I think also so courageous and brave. So I was like, I don't think, you know, I would have done what they are doing when I was that young. And it just really demonstrated to me like, Yes, giving, you know, this even people telling you can give them a fish or teaching them how to, you can give them a rod or teaching them how to fish, you know, all these concepts that everybody talks about. Mm. I think that's in the end I find fascinating, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think education is sort of, I guess, in many ways the key to unlocking a lot of this untapped potential that's out there. And that's why it's, it's so incredibly important. And so I guess a bit of a bigger picture view on the impact in, investing industry as a whole from your experience how do you see that it's evolved over the past few years i guess in australia and what are some of the key challenges that that you've found working in the industry well i think i'm probably going to talk primarily around australia because i think obviously that's where at the moment i've got sort of most experience in but i think obviously overall it's still sort of high growth i think everybody talks about it. a lot of people are attracted to it you know, they, they like the idea of combining social and financial in terms of their own personal and professional development. I think it's still a relatively small industry. So even just getting into the industry, I think it's not that easy necessarily for even, you know, graduate or young professionals, but it's growing. So I think that that's, that's good news. There's certainly a lot of interest, including from institutional investors. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, very similar to what I alluded to earlier, this expectation that you can have both really solid financial returns and social impact mm. and that the reality is sometimes very different sort of working at the coal phase of impact investing like what I'm doing it's just sometimes not that shiny you know and sort of like you know sort of conferences yeah impact investing etc like for example a lot of social enterprise they would never be able to afford tickets to all these social yeah. impact investing right and so then there are all these people talking about basically the MSTs that are not even there so it's sometimes people weird but I think obviously there's a lot of potential I mean I think there's also a lot of goodwill and really you know hard hard work into trying to do more especially even from institutional investors here in Australia imagine like what the super money super fund money could do mm-hmm. but it also means you need to find transactions that meet the requirements of investors so I think that's sometimes still a challenge in terms of you know finding the right structures but I think People at the moment are still a little bit sometimes like thinking too much the old way, like this is how you should be structuring it in a traditional way, but thinking outside the box and in between commercial and granting, right? Mm-hmm. This whole, you know, people probably previously think there's either or, right? Black or white. But there are literally so many shades of gray in terms of impact investing. You can have revenue-based loans, you know, loan guarantees, forgivable loans payment by outcome, like you can potentially even like now they're talking about these safe equity notes. So there's a range of mechanisms and tools that you can use to really structure like different tranches for different sort of risk appetites and return requirements. But the thing is, all of that takes time mm-hmm. and it also means that there's a lot of people at the same table for one transaction. So, you know, sort of almost too many cooks in the kitchen and that sometimes can get frustrating and take even longer because everybody's also so passionate and personally invested mm. and really wants to give a good outcome. But at the same time, sort of that additional emotional piece, I think also provides an additional level of complexity 
that's just not there. In the traditional sense, it's just all about this percentage and the dollar value, right? It's all about like maximizing returns or minimizing, minimizing risk. And I think there's a lot of other factors in impact investing that I really enjoy, but sometimes I think can get very frustrating. So for people I feel like who work in impact investing, I mean, a lot of times the technical stuff is not rocket science, right? As long as you're relatively, you know, have got common sense, it's, you can just pick that up. But having that personality around perseverance, patience, ability to take, build partnerships, mm-hmm. uh, having patience and, you know, a little bit of creativity, et cetera, optimism, you know, it's really the character that I think is crucial if you want to work in this space. So, but I think overall it's great to still see that there's more interest from people, you know, that the sector growing overall so I think it's moving all in the right direction mm. that's really good to know um, now in your opinion or from your experiences what are some of the ways then for young investors or millennials like us to get involved or started with impact investing yeah I mean so you can definitely get involved in terms of actually putting up the you know, your money into sometimes like funding circles or giving circles where if it's granting. So there's a couple of networks, including like the next generation um, of philanthropy Australia, you know, sort of sort of upcoming um, philanthropists of tomorrow. And there's sometimes also like smaller circles like Impact Club that's hosted by Impact Investment Group in Melbourne. Although a lot of times impact investing is not necessarily as stringently regulated so a lot of times you have to classify as a sophisticated investor, which from an investment perspective could be quite challenging unless you, you're already fortunate enough to have a good amount of wealth under your belt when, if, um, at a young age. But especially like these giving circles sort of or crowdfunding, that's definitely something that I think you can already contribute. And then, you know, maybe be, um, try and join like a, an advisory committee or board or just volunteer your time. Skilled volunteering provide, you know, a social with some assistance around their business planning or their financial modeling mm. and uh, now they've actually launched state peak bodies the one i'm trying to remember here in in new south wales is a coalition the act in new south wales maybe it's actually called secna i think that might be that might be it and so you've got like yeah even now a national peak body for social enterprises in in Australia and they've got like Facebook groups and sometimes they've got like launch events. Obviously now everything was, you know, digital. But those gatherings and networking events, I think are also really good opportunities to connect with like-minded people. Mm. Yeah. Crowdfunding events. Some of them are sort of now even live, you know, live events with mm. presentations and networking, etc. Yeah. Mm, definitely going to join one of them after this. <laughs> Got us hyped. Yes. Um, awesome. Just to, I guess just to wrap things up, conscious of the time, yeah. uh, we, we like to wrap up our interviews with just a bit of the recommendations piece uh, from our interviewees. Um, yeah. so just for, for all our listeners out there who may be interested to learn more about impact investing or get more involved, are there any books or resources or, or websites, websites or, or anything that you would maybe recommend to them to, to maybe follow or look into? Yeah, sure. I mean, I like, I think Pioneers Post, I think it's cool. It's called, it's a good blog with a couple of interesting articles. Mm-hmm. And I find the Stanford Social Innovation Review, they've got a couple of really good articles and I'm happy to sort of send through my favorite 
impact investing articles that are really a little bit more potentially like rebellious and food for thought. So I think there would be sort of my probably initial sort of recommendations. I mean, like I said, even that an emerging asset class from JP Morgan, I don't know whether that'll ever go out of fashion. I think that's a good overview. And then, you know, in the US, like the Omidia network, they are really sort of into impact investing, big society capital, a big player in the UK. Impact Investing Australia here, the peak body for Australia, they also have a couple of interesting resources. There's the Impact Investment Exchange in uh, in Singapore. So, you know, every, and maybe then even try to most importantly, you know, connect with people. And sometimes even, I've had several people like yourself have done, you know, reach out via LinkedIn. I think most people working in the space are very generous with their time, you know, diary permitting to meet up for coffees or share. <laughs> Uh, share ideas etc so yeah maybe virtual copies more so these days at the moment and and then I wanted to say something else I'm just thinking in terms of the so the articles and then contacting um LinkedIn I was thinking whether there was something else oh yeah of course for example there's the center for social impact you can actually do like a graduate degree sort of diploma in impact and sort of social ent- entrepreneurship so obviously, you know, the uni- university even has that for seasoned professionals wanting to go back to uni sort of part-time for a year or so. Mm-hmm. And that sort of obviously gives you new exposure as well, right, Within from a university context to connect with sort of like-minded people mm-hmm. and maybe have a little bit more of an academic approach to it before diving into the practice. Mm, I might have to go back to uni now. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that that's about it. Once again, we we just wanted to really thank you um, for taking the time to join us today. I think both Lucy and I learned a lot and and hopefully our listeners can get a lot to take away from this as well. So thanks, Anna. Um, Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your Friday and, you know, have a relaxing weekend. Yeah, you you too. Awesome. Thanks, Anna. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the episode as much as we did. While you're here, feel free to follow us on social media at our Instagram account, Grounds for Investing. The Grounds for Investing podcast and the persons involved may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how they pertain to your individual situation.